Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Book Club. My name is Gary Quinn and I hope that you'll stay with us over the next little while as we breathe life into this great new club. Our idea is simple enough. We bring a group of book club readers together with the writer of the book they're reading and let the conversation flow. We're launching now with Michael Harding's wonderful new novel, Hanging with the Elephant, published by Hatchet Books in Ireland. We're joined by three readers, Jacinta Wright, Joe Homeward and Hans Zommer. Welcome all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and of course, we're joined by the writer of Hanging with the Elephant, Michael Harding. Michael, you're very, very welcome. Thank you. And when we spoke originally, and I'll, I'll open this up to everyone, actually, when we spoke originally on a phone and I said, well, what's your book about? And you said, well, it's about meditation and it's about what men get up to when they're alone. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was very exciting. But I wonder, and if I could ask Jacinta and Joe first, I thought from a man's perspective, that's a great intro to a book. I want to read that. What about you guys? Uh, for me, uh, what men get up to when they're on their own is uh, is an interesting but not necessarily a totally fascinating topic because they can do it very well for themselves. Thank you. Uh, meditation is obviously is very interesting, certainly. I found the book very enjoyable. I read it very quickly. I, it uh, was a personal interest to me, actually, because I... Uh, I knew that your previous book had been about depression and uh, my mother has all her life had that hanging yeah. over her. So I have a, a sort of relationship with that. And also when I read this and discovered it was also about bereavement and the effects of bereavement, yeah. uh, that was very personally very interesting yeah. to me because my mother has recently been bereaved. So I had both things yeah. uh, that I really, really connected with, which yeah. was very interesting. For you, Michael, is it a surprise now at the end of this process that those themes came out so strongly in this? Not really, to be honest. I mean, because they're very much the centre of it. Um, it is a novel, uh, although most people would call it a memoir, but you mentioned it as a novel, which was interesting in your introduction. I think that memoir, in some sense, for me, is the new novel. You know, I find... And I've written novels, but I find the kind of formality of a precise novel with it, the, the kind of usual sort of story arc and backstory and all the rest of it, it makes me uneasy if it's not about something that matters. And I, I think we live at a, a real big crossroads in history. There's a, there's a huge explosion in kind of science and technology and evolution in, in first world countries. Uh, there's, there's almost a kind of a global catastrophe you know, on the horizon in ecological terms and also in war terms and in cultural clashes. And so it seems to me that I'm a fan of Martin Amos. I'm a fan of, you know, what he'd be writing about in relation to Auschwitz, that it's very hard to, in some sense, have fun after Auschwitz. It's very hard at the end of the 20th century, if you're European, to avoid thinking very seriously about stuff. And so that leads me to the idea that memoir could be the new kind of novel because it matters, because at least you're laying yourself on the line. And I think that is 
is what matters to people. It's like my story. So I had a long-term plan, which was to write a big, long, huge kind of chronicle of a decade in Ireland and a chronicle of kind of ordinary life, the kind of just mm. nonsense that happens. And yet that it's so human because it's real. And so I accidentally pitched it at the Irish Times to see would they take a few episodes. And they said they'd take six. And that was eight years ago. And they just kept taking it. So I kept writing it. <laughs> and now I'm near, near my decade. And then out of that, I started to sift some sort of clearer shape of so, sort of a couple of volumes. And it seemed to me that what I really wanted to do was, number one, start with really laying myself bare and, and telling my story. But also in a way that gradually is fictionalized, gradually is kind of fictionalized in the sense of formed aesthetically. And so it seemed to me that in this, if you like, second volume, that I was pushing more to find fictional characters in it. So like Putin appears as a bird mm -hmm. and Simone Weil, the French philosopher, appears and a few other people. Um, so it's, it's just trying to hold on to the sense that I'm really trying to tell you the truth about my life. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm gradually trying to shape it in a way that could be slightly mythic as well. And Jacinta, the character of Simone Veil, when, when she appeared, what was that like for you? Well, um, actually, that was my least favourite part of the book. Yeah, and uh, I almost didn't enjoy that at all. And I uh -huh. felt it was somehow inserted. And whereas I loved everything else about the book, That's you know, but I am surprised to hear the summary, you know, that it's about meditation and about what a man gets up to yeah. you know, when he's on his own, because... Um, I think in a way they include uh, the elements that you get the most comedy out of. But for me, I didn't feel that that was where the real work of the book lay. Yeah, yeah. You know, the real work of the book was about the grieving process, I yeah. felt, for your mother. Um, and also, I mean, I just found it so fascinating um, how you present the idea of writing, you know, because you seem to dismiss it so much, you know. Uh, you, the whole narrative is basically um, it recounts the writing of this book. And yet, you know, we don't hear, you know, about how difficult it is or how hard it is. And I, I find it remarkable how, you know, what an amazing writer you are and how beautifully you write your grief at the death of your mother. And yet you don't complain at all about writing. You don't. It doesn't seem to be a painful process for you. What I'm working through in the book is meditation. And to some extent, I suppose, it's a kind of a... There's a little Zen position in it, which is destroyed if I say there's a Zen position. If I say there's a Zen position in it, there's no Zen position in it. You know, if you name the board, you cease to experience the song. But it's the idea that uh, if I try to meditate, you can be certain you're not meditating. If you try not to meditate, you're definitely not meditating. But if you just do nothing you probably already are meditating. So, so that's it. No, no, let me finish. Because that's the sense, that's my position nearly on everything from having sex to writing books. I don't buy into the anxiety of the late 20th century post-Auschwitz. I, I just don't get that. I accept it as absolutely normal. And it's once you accept it, like depression, there's an awful lot of fun to be had. Yeah, because it is, it's, it's you ridiculously, get a lot of comedy out of... It's ridiculously blissful. Yeah. I mean, I find life 
is like Tick Knock Han, and I use these people as references. It's not that I'm in any way an aficionado of anybody, but I mean, he'll, he'll say in that lovely kind of French Vietnamese accent that, you know, bliss is just as close as the flower. <laughs> you can touch it. I, I love the simplicity of saying that. There's a man who lived as a young man through horrific uh, violence, B-52 bombers dropping acid and napalm on children and family. And he lived through that, and I feel that he also probably experiences intense depression, what we would call depression, but he wouldn't call it depression. He probably calls it simply being in the present moment. So, so there's, a huge, there's a huge step, I feel, and a beautiful step, from anxiety into some kind of freedom. And I could I could really be on my own in a room at the moment, very depressed, struggling with whether I can write or not and how bad or how good I am as a writer and feeling I'm old, I have no friends, I have this and the other. I could just be there. And yet the door was just two steps away. I can't explain it any further than that, but... Well, I thought I was uh, I, I was really happy to reading the book. Uh, we'd also in our book club uh, read uh, Staring at Lakes, which was harder work, I thought. Um, but I found it really re- revealing that it's okay to be bad at uh, meditation because I've yeah. been, <laughs> I recognize myself yeah, yeah. in the episodes where you're really trying yeah. very hard. And actually on day one, yeah. you set yourself the goal of six weeks of meditation on day yeah. one. That plan more or less goes out the window. Yeah. And it's what you've just been saying. It's when you try so hard, it actually you're, you're missing the point. Yeah. Uh, so I decided that maybe I should just uh, stare into space a bit more like or yeah. into the fire like you're doing. Um, I actually think it, the, the, reading the book was also really interesting because, yes, it was about, you know, you know your, the grief and, and it was about meditation. But it was to me, it was also a book or it is a book um, about the Irish male. So many men find and men my age, but uh, particularly older, I think, uh, find it very hard just to, you know, hug each other or, yeah. you know, just say say whatever they're thinking. Yeah. Um, and they need a bit of alcohol to, yeah. to you know, get over that inhibition. Um, so I, I thought that was really strong. And I thought, you know, that was the theme for me in this book. And yeah. the theme for in Staring at Lakes was more, well, obviously you talked a lot about depression. It was also about coming to terms about with another really strong person in your yeah. life, which was the, the teacher sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And well, uh, in, in Staring at Lakes, I feel that I kind of set the scene. I set the scene by being, like, completely honest. I'm going to tell you everything about, you know, my testicles and how bad they are and my prostate and everything, right? <laughs> this is me as a human being, the anatomy of a sad man, whatever you want to say. And then from there, it gave me this opportunity to try and shape something. And I think the first step in that shaping in this book is to try and think about mindfulness. And what I'm saying essentially about mindfulness is that it is from my position. So I am a man and I'm stuck with this. And what happens to this man in it, uh, let's say the character in Hanging with the Elephant, is that all he wants is to be away from the lady, get the lady wife away and everything will be perfect. I can do everything well. But you can see that he's over, like he's not just depressive, but he's over exuberant and he's too happy, you know, and he's in danger. Uh, like in, in the restaurant in Dublin, uh, fantasizing about a woman with children mm. that, you know, he could go to Garth Brooks. Or, it, it's like he's he's not well, <laughs> yeah. right? This man is not yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But this is me and this is truthful and this is exactly my private fantasy at that moment. And so, again, that's why I say this will matter if I tell you the truth. So when he goes home, he starts to write his book, uh, but he starts to meditate. 
And again, the meditate collapses and he finds the cat means more to him and he goes to Tesco's and he forgets to buy the cat food and he tells the cat he's there. And again, we're in the zone of complete confessional truth. But we're also in the zone of a male wants to be alone. They want to be alone because they have an abstract idea of God or an abstract philosophical myth that they want to engage with. And it never works. It really just doesn't work. Certainly for this fellow it doesn't because in his solitude he becomes deranged. And I think Simon Weil is the kind of the best way and the dead priest and Simon Weil are two kind of opposite images. You know, this, this, I say we have too many dead priests inside us at some stage. And I mean all males, whether the Christians or Islam or whoever. I, I think there's some strange dead priest inside us. You know, it's like a kind of a, a bad appendix needs to be got out, right? That's one thing as a, me- as, a, as a metaphor. And the other is, the other is you know, th- the philosopher as short-skirted, high-booted, beautiful French young woman, right? So there, there, there are two things. And I think that in that, and, and that session with her, you can see that he's, he's not well. It's, th- th- he's, cl- he's lost in himself, completely lost in himself. And he's only really redeemed in the simplicity of his, his partner coming back and embracing her and realising... Like it's all silly, except holding somebody. And that's where, if you like, I think the story of the mother in it and the grief of that is not just a story of her, but it's a way of telling his story. You know, it's it's like people in the Troubles in Northern Ireland who used to meditate and and have, you know, uh, conflict resolution thinking about people in, let's say, Beirut, because you could look at the problem outside and and focus on it, uh, or vice versa. So in this, it's like by, by walking through the moments of his mother's dying and the tragedy of being old and that, it's really him living him. It's really, it's really a sense of, of knowing from his point of view that all this is what there is. And in the face of that, it's that he didn't hold her or that he wasn't a father to her child. And of course, you see the plane coming back from Poland. He, he just wants to hold me. I thought that a lot of your descriptive passages about your mother mm. and I, I was really moved by the the little diary uh, yeah, yeah. notes. I thought they were, ex- I mean, I, I assume that oh, yeah, is, that's is all true, true yeah. because that is so, was so moving yeah. and the absolute loneliness of yeah. the bereaved woman yeah. not being yeah. in the world but also totally alone and not knowing how to... And not sharing how she felt because, you know, my mother was like that, Mm. but we did our best. The person that gets locked into depression or that sort of terminal loneliness can't break out to communicate with people. Mm. And my mother was very happy and she had a beautiful life and we loved her and she loved us. But in old age, she found herself isolated and gradually, gradually, she couldn't break out of it. So we just knew when she'd come for Christmas that nothing was satisfying her. You'd say, well, we put more, is the electric blanket okay? You know, (laughs) we get the heater in, we put the heater in the room an hour before you go to bed, that kind of thing. And then the next morning we say, how are we? And she'd say, well, it's too hot. And you think, God, you can do nothing for this woman. Yeah. You know, she's never well, satisfied. But it was like, and the, 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 the completion of that was, was finding that she'd written these little notes, really small little notes and a little thing, you know. Mm. So... Did she write those notes 
for you or for someone no, to read no, something. No, 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 never, no, no. But she, she was speaking to herself or to whoever mm. was speaking to her in in some mythic way. I don't know. I, I was. Wondering. I can never know that. She mm. seemed to have. Um, throughout her life, though, had um, relied very heavily on the presence of others. You know, she was very yeah, she much was an outgoing very, woman. Yeah, was she that, managed a hotel. She was yeah. like in the Metropolitan Court. Was that also did. her way of not dealing with some of the stuff that was going on in her head, but just being yes. busy all the yeah. time? Yeah, just talking about everything. Yeah. But, and I, I, I mentioned a, a piece in it which is very personal. Um, in fact, it's a bit I don't like. I think it's too cloying to what I'm going to tell you. I think it shouldn't be in the book because it's too self-indulgent. And I think that you're right when you say that, like, I, I like to read where there's no pain. I like somebody to tell me how their mother died and how the car crib, but not with pain. Actually with the joy of being alive to tell it to some extent. That gives it, to me, a fierce eloquence, right? Uh, so maybe this bit shouldn't be, maybe this bit is, is, should be edited out, but it's, it's where I refer to the fact that I went to her in that same room years earlier and I broke down emotionally and she said something like, if you want to cry, go upstairs. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I said that I looked at her and she looked at me and, saw, and, and I, I could see her fear. And, and this was a very true moment in my life. I was about 28 and I, I was really, I had things bad going on and I, was, I, I, I tried to share emotionally with her in a kind of spontaneous, strong way and I saw that she was terrified of it. And I always wondered, did she suffer something in her life? that was never spoken. You know, because we all, we all think that in our generation, uh, because we can express things like child abuse, that they only happened in our experience. Mm. But she could have experienced very tough emotional things and very, you know, fierce things, never spoken. And, and it may have lent her to become the kind of person who deeply loved her children, but loved them through bonds through buns and apple tarts yeah. and feed them yeah. and chicken soup, you know, but passionately loved them. And, and, and you say, like, on the outside, she was a beautiful dancer. And, like, she really was. She was a really good dancer. Uh, and she was a wonderful person for telling stories. And uh, anything I get, I do a, a thing on stage where I have an evening with Michael Harding, and I go on for, like, an hour and a half just talking. But... I, I'm nothing compared to what she was. I mean, she could, you wouldn't get a word in edgeways. And she could entertain my friends. Like, people would come to see me at Christmas or something, you know, three or four guys or their couples or a few women with them. Or and we'd all be going in to sit down and have a... But by, and give her an hour and she'd take an oath with the party. <laughs> and you'd be wanting to know when she'd go to bed, but she wouldn't. But, but nobody would want to. I'd say, I might say to her, Mammy, you know, like she was maybe 80 at the time, I'd say, Mammy... Do you want to head off, ma'am? You know, you're tired. <laughs> and some of my friends would say, no, 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 she's grand, Nelly, have another drink there. And we like, yeah. they used to, you know, so she was very gregarious and she was very outgoing and she was a great performer. But maybe like, like that, she was afraid to share things because she didn't have mm -hmm. the grammar or the language to share her own personal wound. And maybe that's what became her burden. I think she also deeply loved her husband and was traumatized by the fact that he died. You know. At the beginning, you present yourself as a kind of a simpleton or a clown and, you know, you can't master the material world of, you know, mm. 
um, I don't know, uh, washing your clothes. <laughs> I love true. that bit. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Which yeah. is true. But actually, I think that's very important because I think it's very hard for a lot of us to master the material world and the mountains of stuff that we're trying yeah. to deal with, yeah. you know. Yeah. But you, you bring us into the book. And I was halfway through the book before I realised, you know, to an extent, how sad it was because yeah. you're presenting very sad things and like you write so eloquently about your mother's pain, but you don't bring yourself in, you know, and you don't say, and this made me feel mm. dreadful. And I don't think I would have liked the book as much if mm. you had, you know. But I, I think that that is one of the strongest feelings I have about writing and mm -hmm. about how to try and be eloquent at the time we are. And, and we're, there's still a lot of hangover from this time of anxiety, this time of where it's important for you to know my anxiety. And Ireland, I think, is even a little bit behind other countries, you know. Like we got, you know, we got the 60s about 1978 in Ireland. <laughs> and we're probably still on anxiety. When Some other countries have moved a little bit towards realising that we are so stuffed. We are so stuffed with darkness. Like from, as I said, the ecological to the danger of a, a kind of a global cultural war being World War Three, to living in some sort of not a world, by the way, which is secular, but a world where we feel lost without God. Now, leave God as some sort of mm -hmm. construct and myth, but it, it, the, still the human condition is the sense of being lost without it. Okay? And we have all this stuff, and there's been maybe 50 years of being able to express this with some sort of gravitas that was revered. And I also think it was a hugely patriarchal thing. I think it was, like, these were writers who, you know, drank in Magdeids, and the women sat around them with their mouths shut, right? Or else were told to go home and put on the roast and I'll be home in two hours with the boys, you know? And that, that burden of the author as having some anxiety that it would improve you to know about. I, I have no anxiety that would improve you to know about. <laughs> because you have your own anxiety. Do you see what I mean? So, so the lighter, I feel the lighter I get, maybe the closer we get to touching a sense of our anxiety. It's, it's, it's that eloquence of floating on it rather than starting to kind of swim in it and have a bath in it. Mm. That's what I try to do. I, I try to do that. And I do, I do work at it, obviously. I mean, I do really, you know, redraft and redraft, which is usually really just thinning things out, mm. trying to get it as light as possible to just say, you know, she was in the bed or I went upstairs and just get all that psychobabble that we, that, that makes Western culture feel we're important. Because it's only, like it really is, it's, it's also kind of a little bit, what, like colonial. Every time I, I tell you how I feel, I'm trying to impose a, some sort of paradigm on your experience of the world. You know? Well, you certainly succeeded in my book because I think you, you the, the book reads... Almost like you're just rambling, you know. You're yeah. it's your it's your stream of consciousness, yeah. but uh, you can see that it is very well crafted. So I, I, mm. I was really taken by it. Joe, can you talk to us a little bit about the voice of the book? I, the voice that really struck me about the book was the relationship between the son and the mother. I have to say, uh, it's, uh, that's particularly to do with where where I am at the moment. But I the I thought that the the way in which you it slowly 
opened that out mm. and developed it across uh, across the the period of the six weeks, and you mm. sort of dipped in and out and in and out of it. I re- I mean the, the structure I thought was really really lovely, mm. um, and I I enjoyed finding out about the mother. Mm. Uh, finding out about your mother a lot because there the were those moments that was I was when as I was saying before when. I read about those single notes. I thought that there was such tragedy in that, mm. such pain and tragedy in it. But then there was, it was obvious that she was uh, a, a very outgoing mm. and, ha- and uh, a live woman mm. who ended up somewhere else. And that was the thing that, for me, really, really struck. But that's partly because of where mm. I am at the, at the moment. Um, the the single male alone is a is a mysterious thing, <laughs> which was very funny yeah. as well. The uh, the male attempting to to prove that uh, you can survive. Yeah. Do you do you ever get to talk to men who stumbled upon your work who didn't know you were writing before? Perhaps. Do you ever have that conversation? Do you ever meet anyone? Yeah. And what what kind of things are they saying to you? Well, um, you really get all. You know, you get every variety of reaction from people. I think that the, the general reaction of anything I write is a kind of a recognition that it's truthful. That it, that it, that that's the shift. That I'm actually telling you something private and truthful, and I'm trying to do it in a way that's not self-indulgent or cloying or holding on to anxieties. Mm. Right? Uh, in the book where I track the mother stuff, is in itself an illustration of meditation. So I'm actually telling you the very private stuff that is going through my head as a meditation. I mean, I went I, on one session, and I, I have this in the book, where it's, it, I go from the badger, from an elephant to a badger, mm-hmm. to the banjo, yeah. and from the banjo then to a program I'd heard on the radio about war. Oh, uh, and it's 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 only like in some way to it's it's like showing you it's show don't tell maybe mm. you know how do you meditate how do you write a book about meditation well this is how I meditate or this is what happened to me rather yeah. when I meditated which is like the narrative of my mother surfaced in me so that so that I'm presenting it then to you not as like a historian but as the it's the sweat of my emotion. You're, 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 I'm, I'm bearing witness to really my guilt, my sadness, whatever, in relation to my mother. And that's me. Mm. Like, you know, this thing, everybody has it now and it's great, but, the, you know, the, the duality of me and the rest of the world is really a false, that there is some way that the whole thing is the one thing and that everything I experience is really the waves that are just, that I am the waves and all the rest of it. Um, and just to be there is good. So then having, the idea of having a meditation or or trying religion or trying meditation or trying to have a life that has some sort of serenity is in itself a dualism and a delusion and actually realising that all the, if you like, muck, that, that this the waves of crap that we live in and, and actually it's just, it's okay. It's okay to fail as a male. 
It's okay to not be great as a lover, as a father, sexually. It's okay to have completely failed in any attempt to get philosophical meaning to your life. Literally everything. And it's okay not to be able to manage your iPhone and, and to make mistakes about your calendar and do the most stupid things like with a computer that puts the plug in the wrong place and turns the red switch and blows it up because you <laughs> put it on American. You know, it, it, it's, it's literally okay. And you then start finding yourself laughing in the most intensely, you know, difficult situations mm. where once you would have thought, well, this is the cause of all my anxiety. And, and yet you can slip out of it. So I think I tried to write this part of the whole story as a sleight of hand, you know, and that it is, and that it, that it, that it starts to tease you from this first sentence as a sleight of hand. Please believe me when I say I'm no good at anything. Well, that'll draw people in. And I think that the general reaction to it from men and women would be that it's truthful, you know, that it is autobiographical in a way. And that's really, I think that's what matters. And that's what matters to anybody is, is to tell me who you are. Tell me who you are. It's too late in the day to be telling me anything else. Don't tell me who I am. Don't be telling me who I should be. Just tell me who you are. Very good. That's okay for everybody then. I also felt that in a way gender is unimportant in the book mm. because the book is about mothering and how all of us can mother, you know, men mm. and women. And we can mother the cat and we can mother, you know, all of the people in our lives. And I thought I found that really important, mm. you know. And I mean, I actually don't know anything about um, Eastern philosophies, mm. but I mean, I did feel that, you know, everything was one in the book in that sense that, mm. you know, you you became the mother. And it's interesting that you cited uh uh, a sentence that really struck me where you wished you had uh, embraced your mother and become the father to mm. her as a child, you know. So actually, I think the I found it, um, it moved beyond gender in that way, you know. Mm. But I'd also like to just say, you know, this book is a really funny book, you know. Oh, I mean, really? our, yeah. our conversation know, seems yeah, quite yeah, yeah, serious, like, yeah. but it's a very amusing book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I felt, God, this is sounding like, you know, it's a textbook of some early. <laughs> Exotic no, it, <laughs> philosophy. It, it has laugh out loud yeah. moments. I think it, it, mm. re, it yeah. really does when you're struggling on with living on your own. Yeah. But there's also like uh, there was the moment when the swallow flew in, which I oh, yeah. I thought that yeah. was just so beautiful. I mean, it's just a few sentences, yeah. but the story of the swallow coming in. Yeah to the place where it would normally come being chucked out by you. It's very yeah. sad on the bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Celtic tiger. I've moved. <laughs> you are the Celtic tiger. I've moved in here, baby. There's <laughs> <laughs> great fun. Just the last thing, but there is, and thank you for, thank you for reading it and thank you for everything that you've said about it. And I'm, I'm really deeply appreciative, but there's an old thing that, um, you know, I think it was Beckett said that there's nothing as funny as complete misery. And I, I've, I've worked in theatre and I believe in that. That And it's not, it's not pretend misery, but really deeply, truthfully, uh, tragic things are comic. They're comic, they're funny. And to see the fun is to be, to be free, is to float in the, in the perceptions. One example, I was signing books and a lot of people would come up and you'd be signing a book and they would tell you stories about their mother and this, that and the other. And one fellow yesterday, and he said to me in a bookshop, he said, 
genuinely, he said, my mother never held me in her life. And I felt, oh God, that's pretty rough, you know. And he was a countryman. And, and the country people here do have, there's a, there's, there's some folk comedy still lives in the country, which is very powerfully healthy. And uh, he says to me, he was um, from South Ulster, I won't say where, but he said, I said, God, that was rough. Ah, yeah, he said, it was rough enough now, he says, but there was nine of us, you know, so there wasn't much time to be hugging. <laughs> but he said when she was dying, I had a friend, a psychotherapist, and he told me, like, you know, that it's very important that the, the last sense that goes from all the senses is the hearing, and they just really talked to her when, you know, she was dying there in the bed. And so I really did. I, I you know, I leaned over to her and I says, Mommy, you know, I did love you and you reared nine children and you reared them well and you've lived a good life. And and she spoke, she says, Dermot, will you please stop talking? <laughs> <laughs> and those were her last words. And she died. <laughs> And he told me this, this is a truthful story, he told me this yesterday in, in a shop, you know, and he, and he meant it. And he was laughing. He was, yeah, he, 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 wasn't la he, he had found the wisdom of just being human, that, that everything we do fails, everything. <laughs> there, there is, it's not a movie. It actually is, is terribly comic how we keep falling on the banana skin. And yet he could feel and understand that in that failure with his mother, it still was a beautiful life and still beautiful to hear her voice in that moment. Mm. You know, how, how wonderful. That kind of. Michael, we've been very privileged to have you in the room today. Um, I'd like to thank our panel of readers, Jacinta Wright, Joe Homeward and Hans Zummer, and of course you personally, Michael, for coming in to see us. If you, the listener, would like to be a member of our book club and be kept up to date with all our book news, then go to irishtimes.com forward slash books and register. You'll also find links to all of our content on Michael Harding, including his weekly columns and much, much more. So until next time, I'm Gary Quinn. Sound today was by JJ Vernon. Thanks for listening to the Irish Times Book Club. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.